Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we hear from a Vancouver artist who turned her love of baseball and a career-ending injury into a new and very successful career, creating portraits of some of the game's best past and present, a move that helped her recovery both physically and mentally. We look into a story of murder and intrigue at one of the largest Canadian Second World War prisoner of war camps in southeastern Alberta and hear from the author of a new book called Hanged in Medicine Hat. Predictions of a Republican red wave turned into the reality of a red ripple in the U.S. midterms and it saw the Democrats perform better than polls and history foretold. Why and what impact will it have on the race for the White House in 2024? But first, Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister provided a preview of the long-awaited Canadian Indo-Pacific strategy today, and it features a new, tougher line on China, with Melanie Jolie saying the world's second biggest economy is undermining global security, trade, and human rights. First up, we've waited a long time for Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy, essentially a blueprint on how this country will live, work, and trade with that increasingly important, crucial part of the world, a game plan for diversifying and deepening trade in that region. Today, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, provided a hint of what to expect, specifically on China, adopting a more critical tone than we've heard before, or at least recently, despite the very real threat of retaliation from the world's second largest economy, calling out China as an increasingly disruptive global power. In a speech this morning in Toronto, Jolie said Ottawa can work with Beijing on topics like climate change, but says China is undermining global security, trade and human rights. She said that means it's time to find other partners to work with too. China is an increasingly disruptive global power. It seeks to shape the global environment into one that is more permissive for interests and values that increasingly depart from ours. What I would like to say to Canadians doing business in and with China, you need to be clear-eyed. The decision you take as business people are your own. One wonders what she means like that, because I don't imagine any business here does business with China unless they are clear-eyed about it. But uh, we'll get into that. Jolie says Ottawa will train diplomats to become China experts as China takes a more cautious approach to that country. You would hope they were already doing that, but I imagine that might be something worth noting. And she says Canada will also uh, unveil the long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy. This was not the unveiling. They're going to do that within a month. Uh, which brings us right into the holidays, which is a weird time to do it. Uh, they also vowed they will boost efforts to fight meddling by foreign powers in Canadian affairs. We talked a few nights ago about a Sam Cooper, a global news story about allegations of widespread foreign meddling in Canadian democracy, including funding the campaigns of 11 candidates in the 2019 federal election by China. We'll get into that as well. What does Beijing think of all of this? Well, this week, the state-run English language paper there, the Global Times, uh, which is really uh, a mouthpiece for the rest of the world to read, uh, says that Ottawa is essentially doing Washington's bidding here and uh, will be sorry. Joining me now with more on this is Gordon Holden. He's the Director Emeritus of the China Institute and a political science professor at the University of Alberta. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome back. It's a pleasure. Thank you, man. So what did you make of, of what was said today? It, it didn't feel... All that groundbreaking, but the, uh, Melanie Jolie certainly used terms that we hadn't heard in a while. No, I, I think those terms are, are rather new. They haven't been heard in terms of Canada-China relations since probably the 50-plus years we've had relations with China. 
But on the other hand, I've seen some pretty clear signs in private conversations with government officials and Global Affairs Canada and elsewhere, but also in actions taken by the, the Canadian government, that cooling has been in place. So I think this is the policy framework for policies that in de facto on the ground have already shifted. Yeah, we saw the withdrawal or at least um, some rethinking about licenses for allowing Chinese companies to take over uh, precious uh, rare earth companies in this country uh, last week. I guess we've been seeing a drip drip of it. Where do you think, you know, where do you think the, the is this about uh, aligning with Washington? Was this about the two Michaels or has it been sort of a steady awakening about what exactly China might be up to here? I think it's probably all of the above. I was in Washington myself last week and spoke to the State Department and other uh, U.S. administration officials, and clearly they're on a, have been for a longer time on a, a trajectory towards a harder line with China. I don't think they've, that's fully run through. There's a bipartisan consensus in, in Washington to be tough on China. So I think we are, to that extent, falling into line with some of our allies, such as Australia, the U.K., and certainly the U.S., yeah, I mean, China will clearly not be happy about this. They've already made that clear. Uh, should we brace for a reaction? What What will China's reaction be to this, do you think? I don't think we're going to see a, I could be wrong, of course, I've been wrong many times. I don't think we're going to see a uh, commercial reaction or a, a pushback. I think what they'll, what we're really seeing will be for the Chinese, a reconfirmation that we are in the Western camp. We are with our our U.S. allies and that the, any expectation they might have had of a quick thaw. They've been making friendly noises over the last year, well, since the release of the Madame Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels, um, attempting to warm the relationship. But I think on the Canadian side, at least, and I think to some extent on the Chinese side, there's been such an erosion of trust and confidence, and in the Canadian public and the media, that any any shift towards a... Uh, a closer relationship was uh, was uh, basically off the table. So this is really a public, uh, I would argue, a public expression of private thinking within government that's been in that place for a couple of years. Now, we had heard that behind the scenes, there was quite a bit of, um, quite a fight over this Indo-Pacific strategy, at least the approach to China, that as always, you know, there are many people of many different minds about how one should approach China these days. And that was playing itself out in the background, as this uh, policy has been put together, we got a little bit of a hint of what it might look like today. Uh, were you hearing that as well? Yes, absolutely. When you have a, a, a substantive rethink in policy terms, you know for sure you're going to have squabbles between departments. You've got departments whose job is boosting foreign trade. You've got departments such as CSIS, whose job is, is corralling spies, and DND, which has a defense elect out. So you, you, there's obviously, there clearly are different agendas for different departments, and that all has to be somehow melded into a, a consistent policy. And even, of course, within government, there are differing points of view. This has taken quite a while. I think the bureaucracy has been working on this for obviously a couple of years, and I think that the political masters have now got themselves comfortable with a set of, of policies. I think Madame Jolie did a pretty good job of delivering them, but the, the detail is going to come rolling out um, I think fairly soon. I would not be surprised if it happens during the visit of the uh, of the leadership abroad for these Asian summits which are coming up near the end of the month. 
Yeah, it would make sense to do this before December and everyone's, you know, Ottawa becomes a bit of a ghost town about December the 1st, right? So it'd be a good idea to maybe put that out there before the holidays. Is there any risk here? Uh, and I noticed that the, the, the language that Melanie Jolie was using, she wasn't mentioning, uh, you know, friendshoring or decoupling or some of those other terms we've heard of late. Um, but is there any risk here that in, uh, in looking at the politics of this and looking at the public opinion of this, that there is a danger that um, that we'll be abandoning a business relationship that makes more sense. And that's just playing devil's advocate. But, you know, I lived in China, obviously, and China, is, as you well know, is a multifaceted place, right? It is not just Xi Jinping and the Communist Party. There are many different things going on. And part of that is business dealings, which have been left alone for a while, but feels like less so now. Yeah, good point. And uh, uh, as you know very well, having, having China experience yourself, when people say the Chinese, my instant thought to myself is, who are they talking about? Is it the party? Is it the people in the street who didn't choose their government? Is it the the business group? Is it the military? So, yes, it's a complicated place. And we are almost uniquely among Western countries deeply dependent on foreign trade, far more so than the United States, uh, far more so even than China. So our prosperity hinges on exports. And it is, China is our number two export destination. It's fine to say we should not buy so many things from China, but would Canadian canola producers or pork producers or aircraft producers be able to say, well, let's not bother with the China market. It's just too big to ignore. So there's the, the rub. How to be tough when necessary is China and yet still benefit from the economic activity in that, in that huge country. State actors from around the world, whether it's China or others, uh, are continuing uh, to play uh, aggressive games uh, with our institutions, with our democracies, and that's uh, why we are uh, creating new tools to ensure that we are able uh, to deal with uh, more threats uh, in the future. That was the Prime Minister earlier this week uh, responding to a report from Global News' Sam Cooper. We had him on the show on Monday uh, that Canadian intelligence officials had warned the Prime Minister that China had allegedly been targeting Canada with a vast campaign of foreign interference uh, that uh, it involved transfers of funds, clandestine transfers of funds, to at least 11 federal election candidates um, during the 2019 federal election. Gordon Holden is with us at this uh, in this half hour. He's the Director Emeritus of the China Institute at uh, the University of Alberta. What did you make of that story? What did you make of the reaction? Uh, the Prime Minister seemed, I wouldn't say unalarmed, but he seemed, uh, you know, the, the language was, was tough, but it wasn't exactly... Um, alarmed, which may be, maybe because he already knew, but still. I hear you. I hear you. Well, I presume he knew. Um, quite frankly, this sort of sub-rose activities are not new. They've been going on um, since we established relations with China, and quite frankly, in those days, back in 1970, there was a strong competition amongst the Taiwanese and Chinese for the hearts and minds of the Canadians of Chinese origin. That's the past. But this is this is not new. It, it continues. It's ongoing. Um, it needs to be dealt with. Um, I have a little bit of misgivings that this came from a leak from serving CSIS officers. I have no trouble with former officers opining on what's happening. I'm a little bit leery about top-secret information leaking directly to the media. On the other hand, I'm sympathetic to people who say, well, something needs to be done and nothing is being done we need to act, but it's a bit of a slippery slope to have leakage out of our out of a group which are actually very tight-lipped and uh, well-guarded secrets normally. 
from that organization. Yeah. What would you say the uh, the reason for it was? We have an Indo uh, Pacific strategy in the ready or on almost ready. Uh, Melanie Jolie was speaking today. That was set up quite a while ago, I believe. Her speech today at the Monk at uh, the Monk School in Toronto. So why this? Why sudden? Why a sudden leak from CSIS? Do you think? Well, I think there's frustration there, from my understanding. What I know, I've dealt with that organization for many many years. Uh, of that, they are feeling is that their concerns are not being treated. Seriously enough, on the one hand, you could say that if it, from the point of view of a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and you can't have an overall China policy just focused on the security side, but you can't ignore that either. And quite frankly, when they are engaged in undermining fundamental institutions, such as democratic elections, or members of parliament, or, or members of provincial legislature, that's um, untenable and needs to be dealt with. And Hopefully that's being done. That's beyond the pale. Uh, but it ought to be in a normal fashion, in my view, dealt with by this information reaching government, then government acts. Um, that information leaks out of intelligence agencies is, is not ideal, but that's maybe I'm being old school. Yeah. Uh, how do you solve that problem? Because it seems like it's been called out, as you pointed out, it isn't new. It's been called out before and as numerous times. Uh, there have been numerous cases over the years where China's been called out for sort of uh, operating without much uh, regard for the sovereignty of another nation. Uh, how do you stop this? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, you may have heard this analogy from me in the past. I, to me, the Chinese intelligence work is a bit like crabgrass. You pull it up, out of your yard and it grows back, you pull it up again, you don't expect it's going to go away forever, and it won't. The whole purpose of these agencies that operate abroad, I mean, KGB, you could say the CIA, but I'm thinking of the KGB here as a model of quite aggressive behavior abroad, um, interfering with um, open, more open societies like our own, and it needs to be curbed. But it's these are powerful agencies, even in domestic terms in China. It's unrealistic, in my view, to expect that it's going to stop forever. You have to main, maintain vigilance and be ready to act against them and to uh, to speak out publicly, but also behind the scenes to deal with the people who are dealing who are doing this. Either charge them if they're non-diplomats or expel them if they're diplomats, uh, and that will at least curb it for a while. But it will come back, I guarantee you, as long as those those governments, those agencies, have a role. Um, they will continue to exercise their powers. And there's uh, there's a lot at stake for countries such as China here when it comes to uh, to uh, you know their their reach diplomatically. And so, on. Gordon Holden, as always, thank you for your insight on this tonight. It's a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Well, the baseball season came to an end uh, just a few days ago. The Houston Astros crown champion, Dusty Baker, the manager, a World Series champ for the first time. A feel-good story. Unfortunately, if you were Canadian, you might have been cheering for the Phillies. Their manager is Canadian. We talked about that last week. But we're going to take one last trip to the Diamond tonight to bring you a very special story about a BC baseball player who turned a career-ending injury into something very positive. Um, Vancouver's Lauren Taylor went from practicing the art of baseball to practicing, to producing really baseball art and to excuse the baseball cliche, she's hit it out of the park. It's not just a story though, about an injury. It's a story about coming back from an injury and finding success in a new field and how something like art allowed that recovery, both physically and mentally 
to take place and carried her through some tough times. And Lauren Taylor joins us now. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell me about your, your love of baseball, because I was watching this great story that uh, that was done in Philadelphia about you. And there's this amazing shot of you, like at, at that age, you know, when you're in Little League, you're just tiny, tiny, yeah. tiny. And there's a great shot of you at that age, like eight, nine, with your little helmet on. And uh, What was your love of baseball from the get-go? Yeah, you know, it, um, I grew up in the Seattle area uh, during the 90s when the Mariners were, were a lot of fun to watch. And you know, Ken Griffey was on the team and it was a it was a fun time to be in that area for baseball. And I think that's kind of what made me originally fall in love with, with baseball, especially, but um, sports in general. Yeah, that was a great, that was a great Mariners team. Um, <laughs> it's a good run, but, yeah. But, but, yeah, it was a great run. You carried it, you carried it on. You went, you I mean, you played all the way up, up into university, right? Yeah, I played, um, I, you know, played baseball until it turned into softball, um, which turned into fast pitch. And, uh, yeah, ended up playing at Wenatchee Valley College and um, loved loved playing and um, then played as an adult in um, kind of higher up slow pitch leagues, which I know sounds kind of strange, but they're out there. And, um, yeah, that's where, unfortunately, I was injured. But it was, um, it was a really good run. I, I absolutely love the sport and um, being involved in it. Now I just do recreationally, but uh, it was a, was a lot of fun. Yeah, you still play. Um, tell me about the injury, because that was really something that, that changed everything for you. Yeah, um, you know, initially it was one of those, you know, kind of stories you, you've you heard before, but don't think it's going to happen to you, or someone gets hit with a, you know, a ball in the face, whether it be, you know, used to hearing it be, you know, a bad hop, or a pitcher takes one back, and growing up, uh, we didn't play with masks. I wasn't used to it. I kind of, you know, it felt odd to wear one, so I didn't. Uh, Obviously, I wish I could go back in time and have one on, but I didn't wear one, and I was at third base. And, you know, it was initially bad, as you would imagine. You know, I was knocked unconscious. I had a lot of damage, obviously, but I figured it was just kind of a short-term thing. Once it healed, once the bruising went down, all that, I'd just go back to my normal life. And I kind of did um, until the concussion symptoms really kind of took hold, which I had no idea what to expect with that um at all and mine were delayed it took about four or five days for them to really set in uh and when they did I just I kept waiting for them to kind of go away and instead they just kind of evolved so my eagerness to get back on the field and go back to my normal life sort of exacerbated things because I um definitely went back to things way too fast and then found myself just on this wild journey of just trying to find my brain again um as weird as that sounds i never expected it to be an injury that would you know take so much of my life and and change things yeah i I mean it sounds terrifying to be honest it sounds it sounds terrifying to all of a sudden wake up one day and realize that things have changed and you don't know when if ever they'll be the same again yeah and that's just it you know you're um i battled mental health stuff you know younger and you kind of learn to, to adapt and adjust and, and, you know, find ways through that or tools, you know, to deal with things as you get older. And so I think probably the hardest part was realizing that that had come back in a different way. Um, and in a way that I did not plan on happening from a sports injury, you know, I was very good at managing <laughs> various other injuries um, and surgeries and such on, you know, shoulder, limbs, what have you. But this was something that just wasn't it wasn't a broken bone. It wasn't a torn ligament. It wasn't something we just went in and fixed and started rehab and I was done. Um, it was far more complex. I think that's what was scary about it is I just didn't understand 
and still, you know, have, have things that I'm learning to, to sort out. Um, and like all, you know, invisible things in the brain, they're very much real, but it's just hard to figure out how to fix. And then you started to, to you, you turned to art, and I was I was found it curious to read that that you weren't a particularly. It's not something you spent a lot of time doing, or you weren't particularly. Um, I don't know whether talent would be the right word, but you didn't have a great passion for it I when you were in high school. In it at first, um, <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, no one was buying my art. You know, back in the day, it was something I did just as <laughs> gifts, and um, I I still am learning a lot about art as I go. Um, but yeah, you know focus was another thing that became really fleeting for me. It wasn't always great anyway, but definitely was fleeting after the accident. And, um, that, uh, art was oddly one of those things I could, I could focus on and stay focused, which kind of made me feel at home in my body again. So I started doing more and more art after the accident and then making it of baseball made sense because it was almost a way to be back in that world. And I think the same thing a lot of athletes struggle with when they retire, um, that routine of you've been doing since you were little, you know, get up, train, go to school, train, go to bed. It's, it's a very regimented schedule of, of how to be. So when that suddenly stops, you kind of lose your identity a bit. And that's what happened entirely. Even though I, you know, I wasn't playing pro like some athletes do. I, I definitely had gotten used to a lifestyle. Um, and trying to find a new one in the middle of a head injury was was a little scary and difficult. And so that's where art kind of came in and, you know, changed things for me. To say the least, because you started these portraits, and I gather you really had to, I mean, art, I'm sure, is 90% hustle as well, right? You have to... I say it uh, all the time, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> which is a bit like sports in that way. How did it, how did you, how did it, how did it come together for you? How did all of a sudden this go from being something that was sort of a, something you were you were pl- you sort of trying out to to something that's turned into a real success? Yeah, I think a lot like sports. It was one of those things where it there's there's a little bit of natural ability there. Maybe I was a bit creative, a bit more creative than you know maybe some, um, but the the love for it and wanting to do it all the time is what kind of improved and, and made me do it all the time to get better. Um, same with sports. So it was, it was a lot like that kind of the training mentality of you don't really get tired of, of, you know, grinding away or you have more motivation grinding away at something that you love. And once I kind of tapped into this art part of things and found a medium that I liked better than pencil work, I used to just draw pencil portraits. Um, I was, I was all, it's all I was doing. It's still all I do. <laughs> I do so yeah. much art that, you know, you're bound to get better at it, right? I don't care who you are. If you do that much of anything, you're going to get better uh, at it. I and, wouldn't, um, but, but yeah, I wouldn't. I, that's how I yes. feel about singing. That's how I feel about some stuff too. I'm like, no, nope, not enough hours. No, there's no <laughs> way. Gonna, but, uh, yeah. it, it worked in that case for, for me where, you know, then just that a lot of hustle, a lot of, you know, I've heard from people, you never, you never do anything for free, never give away your services for free. And I felt the exact opposite. I felt like I had to provide value because we live in a world where entrepreneurs are everywhere. We've got social media influencers everywhere. Everything's at our fingertips. And I knew there was a lot more talent out there. Um, so I was going to have to find a way to outwork them and find a way to, to, to kind of rise above all of this, all the stuff we're, we're, you know, right at our fingertips. You could type in sports artists and you'd be blown away by hundreds of portraits done by people and trying to figure out how do I, how do I stand out? It just came down to 
I have to work a little bit harder than everybody else every day. And do I work harder than everyone? No. But if I can just kind of kind of be at the top every time, you know, put in a little bit of extra work, maybe send out one more extra email, you know, make one more art connection by giving a gift. And, you know, it, it, it always comes back. Nothing actually is free, I think. And that's, that's the mentality I've um, kind of adopted that I'm not afraid to do. I wasn't afraid in the beginning to just get my art out there, even though that meant, you know, working my full-time job and on the weekend working really hard just to hand art away for free and hope that it came back and paid off in the long run. So it did. If you look at your website, I mean, it, it is now, uh, you know, sort of a who's who of, of great ball players. I mean, depending on what era you grew up in, I mean, the Ricky Hendersons, the Don Mattingly's and so on are who I remember in the yeah. Eteros and the, but, course, but, you yeah. know, there's Bryce Harper, there's all kinds of, so, so this has become a huge success. I mean, it really has. Um, tell me what you're up to these days and who you've been, who you've done portraits of and it's it's just been it's great to see yeah it's um you know some days it's still i just came back from the world series and you know got that uh, promo commercial spot on there that uh, when i was asked to do that it was kind of still hasn't really set in the magnitude of that for me and and how insane it was to be watching the world series and have me pop up and you know hear joe davis say my name and um, you know, as they're showing players and stuff like that hasn't really fully set in. I'm st- I still sometimes forget to soak it in because I'm not sure I actually believe it's happening sometimes if I'm if I'm totally honest with you, because this was not the life I thought I would have. Um, but it's all it's all from extreme gratitude. It's, it's, it's appreciation, but just not trusting that this is real life sometimes because, you know, I've suddenly have my dream career that I couldn't have. Dr- I honestly couldn't have thought of a better career for me if I. I obviously couldn't because I didn't try to do this before I got hit in the head. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, it's it's been neat, and I think a lot of what has helped me branch out is um, outside of sports too. With deliveries, the summer was able to deliver to Alicia Keys and Macklemore, and you know all these people that I look up to um, by doing a gratitude project series, which I started um, when I very first started making art, long before I was ever selling it. And it's the idea is to make art for someone that has either changed my life or has done something special within the community or uses their platform um, to, to bring good to the world. Because I just think that stuff needs to be acknowledged. And at least it's, it's special to me to acknowledge that. And it was something that kind of helped in that dark time um, too. So um, I started doing these gratitude projects and that's helped me meet, you know, some players by being able to thank them for either bringing mental health awareness, um, actually awareness around head injuries and what that can do um, is kind of, what started in the sports field um, with Macklemore was about talking about, you know, drug and alcohol and how addictions and how he he's constantly working to improve himself and um, not being afraid to admit his shortcomings so that the people that are struggling quietly understand that they can still do these amazing things in their lives and not be perfect yeah. because everything's such a highlight reel. Right. So um, I really, embrace vulnerability and want to thank those that have, have done that before me so that I can understand that this process yeah. isn't perfect. One, so. one sees both the passion and the, and the need to give back and what you do, which is, which I think is what's made it. And I'm, I'm no art critic, but it, I think that's, what's made it so successful is it's genuine, right? There's a genuine passion and, and desire in what you do. And I think that, in, that in of itself is infectious. Uh, do, do you have a, your favorite player? Have you met your favorite player yet growing up? Uh, that was, mine was Reggie Jackson, never got to meet him. That's pretty neat. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I, I got to meet Willie Mays and spend some time with him. And that was 
Wow. That was the most terrifying experience at first because I I was just not, it's like I forgot how to use language. It was was terrible at first. And then it was amazing. Um, I think there was was initially some tension because he's probably like, what is wrong with this girl? Just use shorts. And then, you know, I admitted I was just very anxious, which I, I generally don't feel that as much when meeting people. But when you see someone like Willie Mays in front of you, uh, yeah, n- never. Yeah, that's never any less special when I look at those photos. That one was pretty neat. Um, Big Poppy is a is you know kind of more yeah. modern player that I I really idolize. So getting to um, deliver art to him right before his induction ceremony was pretty pretty neat. Um, Bo Jackson, Jerry Rice. There's been some really this year's just been really special. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a who's who. Uh, Lauren Taylor. <laughs> It's a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing it, and uh, congratulations. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Well, with Remembrance Day on Friday, we're going to take a trip back in time tonight to the height of the Second World War, when tens of thousands of German prisoners of war uh, were sent to a series of camps set up here in Canada. I know that a lot of us, at least growing up, I mean, whether, whether it was movies or books or TV or Hogan's Heroes or whatever, we knew an awful lot, I did at least, about uh, prisoner of war camps for Allied soldiers in Europe, but very little about the prisoners of war camps that existed here in Canada for those that the Allies had captured. So amongst those set up in Canada was a major one called Camp 123 in southern Alberta. It was in Medicine Hat, and it was home to more than 12,000 POWs at its height, nearly as many people as lived in the area at the time. Now, for the most part, um, and you'll remember this from, from Hogan's Heroes, perhaps, the camps were run by the prisoners. And in Medicine Hat, where many of them were part of the Africa Corp, an, exp- an expeditionary combat force um, of the Nazi German army that fought in North Africa, predominantly in Libya, um, were among, among them were many Nazi true believers. So within the camp, it was almost like uh, all the rules of being within one of these units had been recreated. Um, now, there was relative peace in the camp until two men, prisoners, were beaten and hanged by their fellow prisoners. Now, RCMP investigators apparently infiltrated the camp and they discovered the existence of almost a shadow shadow Nazi government inside the camp, complete with its own Gestapo, responsible for enforcing discipline and loyalty to the Fuhrer. Now, suspects were identified, charges were laid, and it then led to a series of trials that resulted in the last mass hanging in Canadian history. And it's all laid out in a new book that's part history, part true crime. And joining me now is historian Nathan Greenfield. He's author of Hanged in Medicine Hat, Murders in a Nazi Prisoner of War Camp, and the Disturbing True Story of Canada's Last Mass Execution. And he joins us tonight from Ottawa. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you for having me. I think it it might not come as a surprise to all Canadians, but I think a lot of Canadians would be uh, surprised to understand just what, how extensive a network of prisoner of war camps existed in this country during the Second World War, and specifically this uh, quite large one in southern Alberta. Well, yeah, they were spread out across the country. Uh, in fact, uh, there was one uh, where Man in His World is now in Montreal. There was one in Bowmanville, and there were a number in, in Alberta. The two largest camps were, in fact, in Medicine Hat and Leftbridge. So, so tell me, how, how big was, was this camp, and, and who was in it? 
about 12,000 men in it. The largest group in the camp were men captured from the Africa Corps. And uh, over the years, that changed. In fact, the killing of Carl Lehman was uh, triggered because several thousand men were being transferred to Nice, Ontario, to make room for POWs from Normandy. Right. Of course. I mean, it's so many of the of, of what we know as the great battles of Europe had a, had a ripple effect back to the prisoners of war camp camps in Canada. Uh, you've described this the setup of this camp. And I, I think for those of us who've seen movies about POW camps in Europe, uh, you know, Nazi POW camps back in the day, this was a, quite a different setup, wasn't it? They had, the, the prisoners had quite a lot of autonomy and freedom to do stuff. Well, actually, that was the case in Europe also. In an odd way, Hogan's Heroes is a not bad primer on what a prison of war camp was like. Inside the wire, as it's called, the prisons of war under the Geneva Convention ran most of the show. They uh, had their own uh, officers, uh, if there were officers. Uh, in this, in, in uh, Medicine Hat, there was only one, uh, the Dr. Nolte. Otherwise, it was the senior non-com. The senior non-coms, who, one, one of which was chosen to be the man of confidence, essentially Colonel Hogan, right. uh, in the camp. And they had uh, the rights to uh, organize their lives for the most part. They provided the cooks, they organized uh, games, they organized sports, they organized education, things like that. And there was uh, there was food. I mean, it was. I guess perhaps what I was getting at is it wasn't as austere as one might expect. No, and of course in Canada wouldn't have been. uh, Although Mm. there was rationing here, there were no food shortages here. Mm. In fact, the average POW put on eleven pounds during uh, his years of incarceration. You've also pointed out, and this sort of is where the book starts to come in, that within the camp itself, it, it existed much as the as the Nazi army had, so that there were bosses and that, and that Nazism itself was very much enforced within the camp, if that's the right way of putting it. Yes, it is, especially uh, in this particular camp and in others uh, across Canada. The Africa Corps was heavily Nazified, and once the, the men were here, they reproduced that in their organization of the camp under the uh, hut leaders and then the ultimately the man of confidence and there was a what was called a gestapo of course it, it wasn't a gestapo in the in the technical sense but it functioned as one within the camp that enforced discipline amongst the men there were minor issues of discipline not saluting the right person etc but the most important way that they enforced discipline was to try to enforce a Nazi ideology within the camp. So considering this was a little world into itself, I mean, I gather the the prisoner of war camp, the population of the prisoner of war camp was virtually the same size as medicine had itself at the time. Did they get along? Was there, was it, was it, was there any interaction? Did, Did people get along? Was it okay? The people of Medicine Hat were quite happy when the camp was built because it provided jobs, and through the war it provided jobs. Medicine Hat had suffered terribly during the Depression. The uh, uh, denizens of Medicine Hat were quite used to seeing um, German soldiers in full uniform walking around. They were called parole walks. There were men who worked outside the camp on farms and in the forests, and uh, they were seen quite regularly. The book opens with an essay, discussion of an essay written by Joyce Reese, a 16-year-old girl who played hooky to see the last day of the first trial in 1946. Uh, she was a member of the Glee Club, the Victory Girls, and they actually performed in the camp in Christmas 1942. 
Wow. So, so when does this start to take a turn towards something, shall we say, darker? Because that's really what this is all about, right? Okay, right. In 1943, Private August Plazic was killed. Well, what had happened was the leadership in the camp had heard rumors that the members of the Africa Corps, who had been members of the French Foreign Legion, were going to move against the Nazified camp leadership, and an investigation was ordered. Several men were taken in to be investigated. One of them was Plazic. He was actually killed, not because of anything he said, but because... Just before he was going in to be questioned, Private Schultz broke away from the men holding him. He had just been interrogated and ran towards the wire. The men in the camp saw him running towards the wire, which could mean only one thing, that he was about to defect, so to speak, to uh, the Canadians. They started following him. Others ran towards the hut that he was in, and they caught Plazic and dragged him to another hut and hung him. Essentially, he was killed in a riot. There was no, there were no plans to kill him at that point. Had he been discovered to be a traitor, there would have been. But he was essentially killed in a riot, in a riotous action. So we've talked about, about the, the death of one prisoner of war by his own people. What then happens? Where does this then turn into what we now know as the 1946 trial and the last mass hanging? In 1944, Dr. Carl Lehman was executed. He was executed because they considered him to be a traitor. They were right. They didn't know that, but they happened to have been right. He was he had been giving information to the Canadians, but they had no way of knowing that. So he's executed by the Gestapo the night before they are shipped out to Nye's prison camp in Ontario. And when you say Gestapo, this is literally within the camp itself. This is, yeah, right? this is yeah, within the camp gotcha. itself. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the camp Gestapo. So the investigation of the first killing in 43 by the RCMP is going on, and then there's a second killing in 44. The case isn't broken until after the war in 45, when a letter is left on a typewriter in Nye's, the prison camp, naming names. And then they break the case. And that then leads to the trials in 46. Just to clarify before we get there, so even within the camp, what was happening within the camp itself was considered to be a crime on Canadian territory that could be investigated by the RCMP, clearly. Yes, it it was considered uh, to be a crime on Canadian territory, and we'll get to that in a second, Mm -hmm. and could be investigated by the RCMP, military police, etc. Case is broken in 46, charges are brought, we have the first trial of the three men accused of killing Plazic, one is sentenced to death, he is hung in April, one to a long term in prison, and then he's ultimately sent back, I think in 48 or 49, one is exonerated. And then we have the second trial of the men who killed Dr. Carl Lehman. Their trials are more interesting in many respects, and that's because of the debate about whether or not they were following orders correctly. After the bomb plot, Hitler ordered to be killed. That was before Lehman was executed, but Lehman was executed partially because of that order. And that leads to the debate about Canadian territory. And for that, I have to speak about homosexuality in the camp for a moment, not for any prurient interest. I wasn't interested in the men's sex lives, but it's important because it's used by both the defense and the prosecution in the second set of trials to talk about what was the structure in the camp. The defense used it to say 
since the homosexuality was punished by the German leadership with the knowledge of the Canadians, then German military law, and for that matter, Canadian military law, prevailed within the camp, and therefore what was called the degradation ceremony was legal. If the degradation ceremony is legal because German military law prevails in the camp, then the order to execute a traitor is at least prima facie legal. Then we have, so the trials take place, each of the men is uh, convicted for killing Dr. Carl Lehman, and this issue about whether or not Canadian law fully prevails within the camp becomes central to both the appeals and before the appeals to inside of the trial itself. There are several motions by the defense and uh, Judge Housen, and one of the great lines of, I am of the opinion that Camp Number 132 is within Canada. Canadian law prevailed, and the reason why it's called, I, the subtitle is The Disturbing True Story is I think, and several lawyers today whom I've spoken to think, it should not have prevailed. At the very least, it should have led to long-term sentences and not executions. Because, as you point out, this was the last mass hanging in this country. They weren't alone. You also point out there was another individual with them, um, not related. Yes, and this was the last one, right? So so in in other words, it became a, a pretty significant part of Canadian history as well. Well, it's a significant unknown part of Canadian history until yeah, till my book, yes. When we look back at that time, I was also surprised to learn that, and this is separate from, from this story, but several prisoners of war who were here ended up coming back after the war. They ended up oh, coming yes. and settling uh, and, here. Yes, quite a few. In fact, the engineering officer who pushed the button, which launched the torpedo, which sank the Esquimalt off of uh, Halifax Harbor uh, just days before the end of the war. His U-boat surrenders in Halifax a few days later. He is sent back to Germany, and he returns to Canada and became the chief engineering officer of the Toronto Transit Commission. For example, um, when when people read this book, I gather one of the things that's really, for me, the thing that was most fascinating was how much, how little I knew about camps like the one in Medicine Hat. I mean, there's feels like there's a lot of history to be learned here. Yeah, what's interesting about it is that it's not known. And Canadian history is considered boring in relation to a great neighbor to the South. And as you guessed from the accent, I am from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> and so you have, you know, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, things that Hollywood has turned into extraordinarily dramatic moments. Canadian history doesn't have an awful lot of those, and for that I think we should be very thankful. But we do have a history that is worth knowing. We do have a history that has very odd things in it, like the fact that these men were able to send back to Germany during the war from a special Eaton's catalog stockings and lingerie for their wives and girlfriends. Yeah. Equally so, they were able to send special chocolate, which didn't melt, back to Germany. All of this was shipped free of charge. Canadian government paid for it all, and it was shipped through Turkey, which was neutral in the Second World War. It, it is a, a remarkable history. Nathan Greenfield, uh, the book is called Hanged in Medicine Hat. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your interest. So I imagine like a lot of people, I mean, I don't know, I stayed up quite late last night watching the returns of the U.S. midterms. I don't know why we always, I always do that. Uh, you know, they're not going to, Georgia's not going to be decided. You know that a lot of those 
states where the vote count takes a long time, much longer than you'd expect, um, that you're not going to know the results. But for some reason, it's just it's it, the stakes are so high that it, it's always such captivating, uh, so captivating to watch, to see what unfolds. So the votes are still being counted tonight. We still don't know who will ultimately control the U.S. House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate. It's very close. They're going to a runoff in Georgia uh, between Raphael Warnock, the uh, incumbent, and Herschel Walker, the Republican, who's the challenger. They're, neither got 50%. It was so close. So December 6th will be a runoff in Georgia, much like back in 2020 when they had two of them decided who controlled the Senate ultimately. There's some very close races going on in Nevada and Arizona. The House of Representatives look like Looks like it will be run, be led by the Republicans, that will be, have a change of power there, which could certainly um, hinder President Biden's uh, second half of his term, of his first and perhaps last term. And it'll also have a pretty big impact on the uh, 2024 race. We saw some real, uh, some real movement on that today. The New York Post, Fox News sort of praising Ron DeSantis, who uh, won the governorship of Florida in, in quite the landslide with some pretty impressive numbers, uh, whereas a lot of Trump-backed candidates didn't do so well uh, yesterday. Not, not entirely badly, but not as well as one would have expected, perhaps, given all the headwinds that uh, the Biden Democrats faced, unpopular in the polls, inflation high, price, cost of living high, the price of gas high, uh, problems with crime, uh, you know, concerns over illegal immigration, all the usual things that tend to really decimate uh, the party in power during these midterms. So what exactly happened? There were some trends going on. Um, you know, the Republicans were hurt by candidates spewing conspiracy theories about rigged elections, so on, litigating the past, litigating grievances. Uh, and it probably cost them votes that would have made a difference in certain categories. Young people came out to vote once again and made a real difference. So what does this all mean, uh, both for what happens now, for other countries looking on to see what uh, trends are ha- trends are happening in the U.S., and for the race for 2024? Because, of course, all the marbles really come down to 2024 and the presidential election. Uh, when we don't know who's going to be running at this point, it's not clear that, that uh, Joe Biden will run again. He'll be obviously in his 80s. Uh, Donald Trump is clearly the favorite for the Republican nomination, but who knows what can happen between now and then. Last night certainly wasn't encouraging for him. Joining me now with more on all of this is Kami Akvan. He's executive director at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future at the University of Southern California. Thanks for your time tonight. A great pleasure, Ben. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So as always, a long night. Uh, the story's not, uh, the final chapter has not been written yet, but uh, how did you, what did you make of the result? There seemed to be uh, perhaps some surprises in there. There were some surprises. If history is a guide, the party in power tends to lose seats in midterm elections. There was the high inflation rates in the United States, as well as throughout the world, and low approval ratings for President Biden. That plus historical trends made a lot of people, including pollsters, think that the Democrats were going to get hammered on election night and that Republicans would end up with clear majorities, certainly in the House and likely in the Senate. What ended up happening last night was not a red wave, but arguably a red ripple. Some of the things that slowed down what seemed to be this Republican momentum were a couple of key factors. Number one is that young people, people of color showed up to vote and 
many did not expect that to happen. Traditionally, those demographics don't show up in midterm races in high numbers. They did yesterday. The other factor, of course, was the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. It was a big motivator for Democrats, and that prompted many of them to show up and vote in places where they were able to make a significant dent in the headwinds. All that said, they just slowed down Republican momentum, but the House and the Senate could still be in Republican hands within the next day or two. So for Republicans, they're looking at it as, well, we didn't do as well as we wanted. However, we still managed to likely gain control of the House, and that's a big victory. They control the agenda, they control the committee structures, the leadership, and they control who gets subpoenaed. And you can imagine that there's going to be a lot of that happening in a Republican-controlled House. So a victory of, so we don't know yet exactly, the votes are still being counted, it could be a while yet before we know who controls what, but uh, you're right, at the end of the day, what really matters is who controls who controls the House, right, and, and not necessarily by how much, but there could be some challenges for um, the Speaker, if, if in fact they have a very slim majority in the House of Representatives, and they don't have the Senate? Absolutely. Kevin McCarthy currently has a very loose hold on power. And there are a couple of people that are going to be vying for his position. Because he did not have a clear mandate, then that means his control of power will be a little more muted. And he may not be the speaker going forward. That makes governing a little bit harder. And because there's a split legislature, it makes the ability for anything to pass both houses unlikely. It is less and less common for members of one party to support legislation from the opposing party. It used to be relatively common in United States history in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then things started to break apart and the parties have become more calcified and tribalized, polarized, and it's rare to see them cross party lines to support uh, legislation. So that's just going to make governing that much harder. It means there's probably going to be fewer bills hitting the president's desk unless you start to see something we haven't seen in years, and that's a lot of bipartisan cooperation. That's really the only thing that's going to get legislation out of the U.S. House of Representatives and send it onto the president's desk. Some of the other things we witnessed yesterday, uh, you mentioned Roe v. Wade. Uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was a big motivator for Democratic voters. We saw that uh, in some of the exit polls on some of the networks last night. It was almost as important as motivating as inflation was for Republican voters, which is an in- interesting in that sense because the Democrats were banking on that. Uh, but but any other surprises in terms of, for instance, the election deniers? There were many of them running. Some of them have done okay. A lot of them in the gubernatorial races have lost. Uh, was there a lesson in there to the Republican Party about perhaps why they didn't have a wave? Was it was it poor candidates that prevented them from really sweeping last night? Yes. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, was quite concerned about what he called low-quality candidates. Those low-quality candidates were generally the ones who were supported and backed by President Trump. When he endorsed them, the base responded and nominated them in their primaries. So what happened is candidates who were considered closer to Trump, perhaps more extreme, certainly more MAGA, were the ones who ended up in a general election. And candidates who do well with the base don't necessarily do well in general elections. So we ended up with candidates like 
Herschel Walker in Georgia, who many thought was a terrible candidate, but he won the primary and could be the next senator from the state of Georgia, although it seems likely for a runoff to happen there. Mm-hmm. We'll look at low quality candidates for the governorships in Wisconsin. We look at Mehmet Oz, who was defeated by John Fetterman. Uh, and we look at candidates all around the country that underperformed because of their connection to Trump. And look where candidates overperformed. The, you could say that Trump was a loser last night. And a winner was Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis in Florida won districts that typically don't fall into the Republican category, including Miami-Dade County, a very ethnically diverse, heavily Latino population. And that's in the DeSantis column. He went all of South Florida. So it shows that he's a formidable opponent and expect to see him rally for some type of presidential run in 2024. We may see the same from Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, who defeated Beto O'Rourke to retain his position as governor there, as another contender in the race. And of course, Donald Trump, who says he has a big announcement. And I think we know what that means. Yeah, never I think know. so. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but I'd say he was certainly telegraphing it for the past little while. If you're the Republican Party, you'd want to look at this and think there are some things within the party that are on the ascendancy, and there are some things that are not. And and I get the impression from last night that a certain tinge of, of the MAGA attitude, but also a bit more, a bit less conspiratorial, a bit less grievance driven, seemed to be the path to victory for Republicans last night, whereas the kind of whole election denying thing that that uh, Trump and his acolytes have been sp- been spewing for a while didn't seem to be as attractive to the American electorate in, in the midterms, at least. I think you, you summed that up so well. The MAGA element of the Republican Party did not show up in force last night. That very well could inform how Republicans think about what is going to be a more favorable Senate map for them in 2024. So the path to the presidency going forward is likely going to go through Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, Donald Trump. Certainly Donald Trump is the front runner. It is still his party. Polling shows that there's more than 60% of their GOP who would accept him and want him as their nominee. A lot of those people have not yet felt Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis flex their muscle within a primary and in opposition to Donald Trump. Donald Trump in 2016, not only defeated his primary challengers, he smashed them. So I'd say don't underestimate Donald Trump, but what we've seen in this midterm is that his effect is dwindling and that his grip on that power is not as strong as it was. How about on the flip side of this, uh, clearly if the Democrats had been wiped out last night. Um, It wouldn't have been a big surprise, but it would have been yet another indictment of the president. Uh, What happens to Joe Biden now? Is this is this wind in his sails to run again in 2024? I guess the popular money was on the fact that he would the Democrats would get would get hammered last night and that he this would be another step out the exit for him. For Joe Biden, his political calculation has to do with his health. And he's made that quite clear. He's 80 years old. If he were to run again, he would be the oldest president in American history. There's many who are currently questioning not just his mental abilities, physical abilities, and just whether or not we have a geritocracy in government in the United States right now. So there's some clamor for other contenders to step up. 
But Biden, because he was a centrist Democrat, he did what a lot of other Democrats could not do, and that was defeat Donald Trump. For many Democrats, that is priority number one, just win. And if Donald Trump were running, then Joe Biden is appealing candidate to take him out. However, it's someone like DeSantis or someone like Abbott, the calculation looks a little bit different. And Joe Biden might not be that best candidate, in which case you go to the Democratic bench and say, well, who's on there? Is it a Kamala Harris, who is not that popular, where her disapproval ratings are higher than her approval ratings? And when someone's upside down like that, it's not a good position for running for president. Is it going to be someone like Pete Buttigieg, who's been waiting in line? Is it going to be a governor to emerge from the shadows? Is it going to be Gretchen Whitmer, who had a good night in Michigan last night? You know, where, is it going to be Governor Newsom from California, who's made it very clear that he wants to be on a national stage and has a lot of charisma and money to back him up? So a lot of contenders on the Democratic side, and we're going to see where this all shakes out because there's a a long road between now and 2024. And we've seen that surprises are the norm. Yeah, I mean, things can change in a matter of weeks, right? One last thing I was going to ask you about was was just how voting broke down. I was interested to see that the youth vote wasn't a huge factor everywhere, but the youth vote was fairly substantial yesterday, uh, motivated for midterms, which is rare. And it went disproportionately Democratic, uh, you know, not perhaps not surprisingly. But you could see where where these parties now know where they need to go fight for 2024 now, where their votes could be, where they're not performing as well as they should be, or where they may be uh, seems to exploit. I think that's right. There's certain issues that are very motivating for Generation Z, and those issues are climate change, education, student debt relief, and of course, the economy. They were motivated by a few things, one of the issues that drive them, but also the specter of a Donald Trump running. When they showed up in 2018 and were one of the higher voting demographics, people were surprised. But young people demonstrated their might as an electoral bloc. They thought, is this a flash in the pan? Will this happen again? It did. In 2020, they broke those numbers. 2022, they looked very strong. The whole notion of Gen Z is disengaged from politics is turning out to be a myth. Kami Akvan, thank you so much for your, uh, for your insight on this. I appreciate it. A great pleasure. Thank you so much. 